Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, we're going to be in verses 7 through 15 tonight. Revelation chapter 20, starting verse 7. It says, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur with the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne him who was and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We got a lot to cover tonight because we're going to cover all of these verses. <clears throat> but if you remember, for the last three weeks, we've been looking at the millennial kingdom, the actual literal time where Jesus comes back to the earth and he actually lives on the earth with us for a thousand years and rules and reigns from Jerusalem. David is going to be his prince there and the, the 12 apostles are going to rule over the 12 tribes of Israel and we Gentiles who have been grafted in are going to be ruling with him in different areas all over the globe, over the Gentile nations. It's just going to be an amazing time that we've studied for the last three weeks. But when the thousand years are over, remember Satan had been bound during this time in a place called the abyss, the bottomless pit, some translations say. And he's going to be released from this place of imprisonment. And he's going to come out and he's going to tempt the globe, a bunch of people on the globe, to come against Jesus in Jerusalem and encircle the city. And as you're going to see, um, God then brings judgment and he sends fire down and he consumes all the enemies of the Lord. Now... Satan, then we saw in this passage this, this evening, who can't be killed by fire, is captured alive, and he's thrown into the lake of fire. Well, he'll be tormented forever and ever, and there's a lot we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But who does he join? Look at verse 10 of Revelation chapter 20. Look at verse 10. <clears throat> who does he join when he's thrown into the lake of fire? The beast and the false prophet. That's the Antichrist and the false prophet who worked on behalf of the Antichrist. Now, go with me real quick to Revelation 19. Back up to Revelation 19. And remember what we already looked at in verses 19 through 21. In Revelation 19, 19, it says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with, the, and with it the false prophet who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. You're going to see that's kind of important because as we're going to look at tonight, every, no one goes straight to the lake of fire except these two. There's actually places of torment that the unbelievers go to and ultimately they'll end up in the lake of fire as we've just touched on and we're going to get into that in a lot of detail tonight. But the beast and the false prophet, or the Antichrist and the false prophet, were thrown alive at the end of the tribulation period. They were thrown alive into the lake of fire. But Satan, for some reason, is not thrown into the lake of fire at that time. He's put into this place called the abyss where he's bound for a thousand years. When it time's over, he's allowed to come up and tempt all the people on the earth. And he's not, he doesn't tempt everyone, but he tempts a lot of people, so many you can't count them. 
So I'm going to ask you a question real quick. Who does he tempt? I mean, because I already told you that Jesus is going to come back. Is he tempting Jesus? Of course not. The Bible says that once he died, he died to sin. He can't even be tempted anymore. Is he tempting David? King David? No, he's coming back in his new body. Remember at the end of the tribulation period, the beginning of the millennial kingdom, we've already seen the, the, the righteous dead get their new bodies. They reign with him. They're no longer able to be tempted. He's going to tempt us or the 12 apostles who are reigning with Christ. No, we won't be able to be tempted anymore. So who's he tempting? The offspring of who? Those who lived through the tribulation, who were given righteousness of the nation of Israel and Gentiles. But I'm going to throw out to you, I think the scripture leans toward the only ones from that point on who will be tempted will be the Gentiles. I'm not going to take the time to go there because we have too much more to deal with. But I think there are some scriptures that point to the fact that the Jewish nation from that point forward will believe in the Lord. That only Gentiles will be the ones who are going to be tempted during that time. Again, there's debate over that, and I didn't want to waste time with that. I lean toward the fact that the nation of Israel will not be tempted. They will be believing with the Lord from then on because there are passages that say that. And so because of that, I think it's the Jewish nation. Remember, keep in mind, we talked about the parable of the sheep and goats and how the Bible says in Matthew 25, verses 31 and following, <clears throat> that when Jesus comes back with his angels and he sits on his glorious throne, he'll gather all the nations and he'll judge them according to how they treated Israel. The Bible also said that he will actually um, have the nation of Israel pass under the rod and he'll judge them. And the righteous will be allowed to enter the kingdom. But these are still humans. Remember, there's still sin in the, in the millennial kingdom, even though it's going to be a time very much like the Garden of Eden. But in the Garden of Eden, could people sin? Sure could. Because back at that time, Satan was there to tempt them. And once they ate of the fruit, once they ate, disobeyed God, it became a part of who they were in their flesh, and they passed that on. As you know, the Bible says from the time of Adam and Eve until the time of the law, there were no commands for anyone to break, right? He had given a command in the garden, don't eat of this tree. The law of God, where the commands of what you can and can't do, didn't come till the time of Moses. But during those hundreds of years between Adam and the law of Moses, people all died. Why? Because they had sinned. The soul that sins, it shall die. And the Bible says that that was evidence of the fact that even though they weren't breaking commands, they were still sinning. And because of that, they died. We then say that the Bible shows that at the time of Moses, God comes and he gives us the law. What was the purpose of the law? To show us we're sinners. It didn't make you sin. Well, actually, it caused the sin within you to rise up. We all still sin, but like we've talked about before, whenever someone says, I, you can't step over that line, now all you want to do is step over that line. You might not have never thought about stepping over that line until someone said, you can't, now all of a sudden you want to. And that was the purpose of the law. The Bible says the law was just to show us we can't keep it. Once you realize you can't keep the law, you're ready now for the good news because there's only one who did, and his name is Jesus. And if you'll put your faith in him, God punished him instead of us. And we'll get to all that a little later. But at the time of the law, there came now a time what we call the age of grace or the year of the Lord's favor. He had offered this salvation to the Jews. They rejected the, this offer of salvation. They killed his, the Messiah, which was all part of God's plan. And then the church age, as we know, has been ushered in, started at Pentecost. And Jesus said he's going to build his church and the gates of Hades won't prevail against it. And we're in this time period where, by God's grace, he's just giving salvation to whoever will believe. And he erases your sin, puts his spirit within you, he moves you to follow his decrees. But as you hopefully understand from the scriptures, this time period comes to an end. And at the end of that time period, he's going to gather his church and take them back to be with him. And then there's going to be a seven-year period on the earth where the nation of Israel is going to be confirming a covenant with the Antichrist. They're not going to know it's who he is at the time. 
And there's going to be that time period we've already studied where for the first three and a half years they're living in peace and safety. But then all of a sudden the Antichrist is going to reveal himself to be who he really is. He's going to step into the wing of the temple, declare himself to be God. Jesus told his disciples, hey, when you see this happen, get, 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 run for your lives. It's going to be a time, a horrible time for the last three and a half years for the world and for the nation of Israel. When that time comes to an end, we've already seen Jesus comes back. And those of us who are with him are going to come with him. And he's going to set up his kingdom on the earth. During that time that he set up his kingdom on the earth, Satan's bound for that thousand years. But when it's over, he gets up and he tempts all those people that were born. Remember, at the end of the seven-year period, there are humans that live through it. Very few. But the Gentile nations that are declared righteous because of how they treated Israel and the Jewish nation that are still alive, those will still be human. And how come they're able to be tempted? Satan's bound. How come they're able to be tempted when he's released? Because they still have the flesh. The Bible even says that during that thousand years, there are going to be people that sin and rebel, even though Satan's in the pit, because it's in their flesh. It's still in them. Hey, those of you that are saved here, uh, show of hands. I, you're hopefully not afraid to admit that, right? I, I'll put them both up. Thank God. Here's the deal. Do you still sin? Yeah. How come? You've been saved. That's because I've been saved in my spirit, my soul. I, my flesh is still a mess, isn't it? Sin, yeah. Yep, here's the deal. So Satan is released, and, and he's going to tempt those who are born to all those people to come fight against Jesus. And then they're consumed. Now, this final battle is not the same one as the Battle of Armageddon that we saw, which is at the end of the tribulation period. You see, there's a difference between the two battles. Some people try to make this battle that we just read about here in Revelation 27 and following, and the Battle of Armageddon is the same thing because it says Gog and Magog. But they're not the same, and you can see it from Scripture how they're not the same. You see, in the Battle of Armageddon, the dragon, which is Satan, the beast, which is the Antichrist, and the false prophet, they use demons to gather kings in the Battle of Armageddon. Go back to Revelation 17. Let me remind you. Revelation 17, look at verses 12 through 16. Revelation 17, verses 12 through 16. And I, and I mean Revelation 16, verses 12 through, through, through uh, 16. Revelation 16, 12 through 16. It says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and his water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw com coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, the three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief, blessed of the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. How can we know from what we just read that the battle we read about in Revelation 20, where they all come against Jerusalem and against Jesus, and here in Revelation 16, where they come against Jesus and they come around Jerusalem, how can we tell that they're not the same battle? There's something I've already talked to you about tonight that you might have kind of missed. The beast and the false prophet are involved in tempting the people to come fight against Jesus. They're not involved in the battle that we're looking at here in the final battle that we've looked at tonight. Why? Because they were cast at the end of that battle into the lake of fire alive, and they're never getting out of there. And therefore, that isn't the same battle. Actually, this, this battle, the final battle, Satan alone tempts the people to rebel against Jesus. But at the same time, I'm not sure it's Satan alone. And I'm going to throw something out to you, a hypo hypothesis. I think that there's a possibility from Scripture that demons will also be used to help 
Satan tempt the whole globe. And I get that from, again, if I'm going to share with you anything, I'm going to show you from Scripture why I think it is. Go with me to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, look at verses 26 through 31. Now, in the frogs before we saw in Revelation 16, that was at the Battle of Armageddon. This in the final battle here, though, in Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 31. Look closely what the demons say to Jesus when they meet him. Luke 8, verses 26 through 31. It says, And then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there he met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes and had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time, for many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into where? The abyss. Isn't that interesting? It's the exact same place that Satan is going to be bound for the thousand years of millennial kingdom. I think the, there's a possibility that the demons will be bound there with him as well. And that possibly when he's released from the abyss to go and tempt the globe, that the demons will probably be involved in that process. Because it appears that it's going to be a worldwide thing that happens all at once. Doesn't it read that kind of way? Well, Satan's not able to be everywhere at once, folks. He's not like God. I think he's going to have a group of people working with him, people, but the demons. I think the demons know that they're going to be sent to the abyss at a certain time. And they're going to be released, I think, at the same time when Satan's released. And they're going to go against the whole globe or tempt, try to tempt the whole globe. Only those who respond will be ones that are going to be responding. But there's also a difference in this battle as, as well. In the Battle of Armageddon, the dead bodies are consumed by the birds and buried for seven months. Go with me to Ezekiel 39. Let me show you what I mean. <clears throat> the prophecy that talks about the Battle of Armageddon and the end of the tribulation period in Ezekiel 39 clearly shows that at the end of that battle, the dead bodies will be, be collected or eaten by birds and their bodies will be collected and buried for seven months. Ezekiel 39 verses 11 through 20, it says, On that day I will give to Gog a place for burial in Israel, the valley of the travelers east of the sea. It will block the travelers for their Gog and all his multitude will be buried. It will be called the Valley of Hamongog. For seven months the house of Israel will be, will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. All the people of the land will bury them and it will bring them renown on that day that I show my glory, declares the Lord God. They will set apart men to travel through the land regularly and bury those travelers remaining on the face of the land so as to cleanse it. At the end of the seven months they will make their search and when these travel through the land and anyone sees a human bone, then he shall set up a sign by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Hamongog. Hamona is also the name of the city. Thus they shall cleanse the land. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and to all the beasts of the field, assemble and come together from all around to the sacrificial feast that I'm preparing for you, a great sacrifice, sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel. And you shall eat flesh and drink the blood and you shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams and of lambs and of he-goats and of bulls, all of them, fat beasts of Bashan. And you shall eat fat till you're filled and drink blood till you're drunk at the sacrificial feast that I'm preparing for you. 
and you shall be filled at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord God. So we see at the end of that battle, there's going to be dead bodies going to be buried for seven months. And he tells the birds, come and eat off of their flesh. Go to Revelation chapter 19. Let me remind you again. In Revelation 19, verses 17 and 18. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. It's at the end of the tribulation period when Jesus comes back. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of the horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And then, as we read earlier, the false prophet and the Antichrist were all thrown into the lake of fire. So, at the end of the, the Battle of Armageddon, which is at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, the dead bodies lay there, and the birds eat off them for a while, and the dead bodies are eventually buried, and it takes seven months to do that. But according to what we read tonight in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 15, what happens to the enemies of Israel and the enemies of God who come against Jerusalem in the passage we just read? If you don't know, go back to Revelation chapter 7, I mean Revelation chapter 20, and look at verse 7, and we'll read it again. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and what? Consumed them. There is no bodies left. There's no bodies left at the end of this battle. As they come to just even gather for battle, poof, God just, just consumes them with fire. So this battle that we read about here in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10, is not the same battle as the battle of, of, of Armageddon. They're two different battles that are very clearly to be seen. Now, I'm going to ask you a deep theological question, and I want you to give me a deep theological answer. I'm serious. Don't, don't, our brains want to give the, the Sunday school answer so bad. But I really want you to think about it before you answer tonight. Why even release Satan? I mean, we saw that he took the beast of the Antichrist and the false prophet and threw them alive into the lake of fire. But Satan wasn't thrown into the lake of fire yet. We see in our study tonight that he will be. But he's actually put into a, an abyss, a, a place of torment and holding on, for a thousand years. But when the thousand years are older, over, Satan is released. Why even release him at all? Why not just throw him straight into the lake of fire? Oh no, there'll still be a men if, if Satan is thrown into the lake of fire, there'll be still could be a millennial reign of peace. I, I probably misstated that. Mm -hmm. There won't be peace as he had during the millennial. Well, if he's in the lake of fire, why not? No, no, no. no. You said Maybe I misunderstood your question. Mm -hmm. I understood you to ask why. No, I'm not saying why is he bound. I'm saying why is he even released at all? Oh, well, hang on for a second. You said there's people that he has to be tempting. But they've already got it in their flesh. Now, I'm going to say to you that that's a strong possibility. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Okay, then why are, why, are they sinning? why are they sinning during the millennial kingdom while he's bound then? He's not tempting them during that time. Right, right. 
I love the fact that you're wrestling with it. I love it. Let me give you the deep theological answer. We don't know. Now, I really want you to understand this. This is important because I've, I've wrestled with all these thoughts. Because as I sat there, I'm like, Lord, why? You, you, and, I, and I thought, maybe, well, maybe they need to be tempted. Yet at the same time, there's going to be judgment on people that sin during the millennial kingdom, and Satan's not tempting. So they don't have to be tempted to sin. James actually says that sin starts from within us, right? It desire is within us already, and when it gives birth to sin, and then it gives birth to death. So you don't need Satan if I've already got it in my flesh. The whole devil made me do it. Remember Flip Wilson? Well, the devil can't make everybody do it. So I started thinking about this, that, and the other. And honestly, as I really wrestled with it, God took me to a passage of Scripture that I want to take you to. Go with me to Job chapter 42. Job. Job chapter 42. Now, for those of you that don't know the book of Job, let me tell it to you real quick. The Bible says that Job was a very righteous man. And he was very blessed by God in many, many ways. And one day when the angels have to appear before God and Satan comes with them, why? Because he was a created being, an angel just like them. He still had to check in. He's not free to do whatever he wants. He has to show up for inspection, if you will. The Bible says that Satan appeared before God as well. And God says to Satan, what have you been up to? Of course, did God not know? Of course, God knows. God knows full well that Satan goes to and fro throughout the earth looking for someone to devour. The book of Peter tells us that. So he says, what you been up to? And Satan can't say none of your business. And so he has to answer. And he says, I've been going to and fro throughout the earth. Again, why is he going to and fro throughout the earth? Looking for someone to mess with and someone to devour. And God then points out Job. He says, what about my servant Job? And Satan says, I'll tell you about Job. The only reason he worships you is because you've blessed him and you've got this hedge of protection around him and you won't let me touch him. The only reason that Job's worshiping you is because you're protecting me, him from me. God says, I'll tell you what, I'll set the parameters. You can do whatever you want to him and his family. You just can't touch him. What does he do? He kills all of his children, takes all of his possessions. And what's Job's response? He worships. He says, naked I came into the world, naked I'll return, and he worships God. Oh, but the Bible says in chapter 2 that there came a time when the angels have to appear before God. And Satan comes with him. Why? He's on a leash, and he's got to check in. And the conversation continues. God again says, what you been up to? He goes, you know, going throughout the earth. And God again says, you ever noticed Job? He said, well, the only reason Job responded that way is because you wouldn't let me touch him. Skin for skin. You watch. You let me touch him. He'll curse you to your face. And God says, I'll tell you what. I'll uh, set the parameters. You can do whatever you want to him. You just can't kill him. And he gives him these painful sores and boils. To the point that he's just in misery and his wife comes and says, curse God and die. Where did that come from? That came from Satan himself. He'll curse you to your face. His wife says, curse God and die. But again, Job doesn't. But if you read the book of Job, Job gets to a point where he starts to complain. And he starts to say, you know what? I sure wish I could have a face to face with God because I don't know what's going on and it doesn't make any sense to me. I know this isn't because of my sin. All his friends said, well, you had to have done something. He's like, it isn't because of my sin. He said, but the, what's the problem is, is even though a man's righteous, he can't have a face-to-face -face with God. Too bad there's not a, someone that can mediate between man and God. I wish there was one. And, and then at times, through the Spirit of God, he just prophesies awesome prophecy about Jesus. It's pretty cool. We don't have time to get into that. 
But Job gets pretty despairing. And at the end of the book, God shows up and says, I understand you wanted to ask me a few questions. Let me ask you a couple first, and then you're free to ask all you want. And then God, God goes on for three or four chapters and says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And do you understand how this has worked, how this is done, and all this? And he just uses creation to display his power and his glory. But listen to chapter 42 at the end of God's discussion with Job. Chapter 42, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And then he quotes himself here in verse 4. He says, here and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. That's what he had said to God. I want to ask you questions. You've got to answer my questions. I had, only, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And let me ask you an honest question. Does God ever tell Job why he did everything he did? Never does. And he doesn't have to. The flesh part of us wants to understand it all. The human side of us wants to have it all make sense to us. We want to figure God out. Folks, I'm going to look you in the eye and say, I don't even fully understand the reason for the millennial kingdom. I don't even fully understand why God would release him again after that. But I can tell you this much. He has a reason. And if he chooses to reveal it to us, he will. If he chooses not to, he has every right not to. And we need to have an attitude that says, this is his world, not mine. This is his plan, not mine. And then God took me to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. Go to Ephesians chapter 3, look at verse 10. In the middle of this whole thing that he's revealing the mystery of the gospel. In verse 10, he says of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Did you catch that? Right now, through the church, he's revealing his wisdom to who? No, it doesn't say to us. It doesn't say to the church. Look again at verse 10. The rulers and authorities where? Actually, he said here that through the church right now, he's just revealing his manifold wisdom to the spiritual authorities in the heavenly realms. In other words, the angels and the demons. Do you know that the Bible actually says in the book of 1 Peter that the angels long to look into this relationship that we've been given to God? I'm going to be honest with you, folks. I think that everything you see and everything we're going through has a whole lot more to do about God and what He's doing in the heavenly realms and the spiritual realm than it really has to do with us. We need to get to a point that we say, even though I don't understand what's going on, even though He doesn't do it the way I would do it, He's the one who made the world. I didn't have any say whether or not I was going to be born. 
He chose when I'd be born and to who and what time in history. The Bible says all of that. And this is all about him. And it's actually going to be about him forever. And he lets me be a part of it. And he's going to make me co-heir with Christ. That doesn't make any sense to me. But why am I going to sit here and say, well, I don't like the idea of him being released for a thousand, after a thousand years. And I don't understand why he would. Folks, do you see how silly that starts to sound? Let me look you in the eye and say one of your best answers when you don't understand and the scripture doesn't say is to say, I don't know and I don't have to know. God has a reason and a plan. And there are too many people that are scholarly who try to figure it all out. I don't want to get there. I want to be one that believes every word of this book and have God help me to see how it all comes together the way he's wired my brain. But I don't want to go beyond what he has said. And the scripture really doesn't tell us why, does it? So I'm looking in the eye and say to him, say to you, you know what? There's going to be a seven year tribulation period. The Bible says it clearly. There's going to be a millennial kingdom. And God shows that clearly. And at the end of that time period, Satan's going to be released. And after he's released, he's going to tempt people all over the globe to fight against Jerusalem and against Jesus. And then fire is going to consume them and they'll be gone. And as we get to not next week, but in two weeks, because we won't meet next week, we'll look at the new heaven and the new earth. That's what we're going to get to when we come back. Yes, sir. Nope, can't kill him. And we're going to get there. That's where we're going next. Great transition. I don't, that's awesome. Look at, look, at, look at what it says here. Go back to Revelation chapter 20. Look at verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Did you, remember how Jesus used to describe this place, this lake of fire? Jesus described it as a place where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. In other words, the fire continually burns, never burns out, and whatever it's burning doesn't disappear. Oh, please don't miss this. Satan is not going to be ruling in hell. Heaven, isn't that how most people talk about him? That he's in hell and he's controlling what goes on and he determines what room you're in and all that junk. Folks, let me just tell you, Satan doesn't rule in hell. Satan will be tormented in hell forever and ever. He's not looking forward to it. He's not there now. When people die, they don't go to hell straight away. You're going to see that in Scripture. They're going to go to a place of fiery torment called Hades, but not the actual lake of fire. And when they go to the place of fiery torment, Satan's not there. Satan, according to the scriptures, is still now able to be in the presence of God and accusing the brethren day and night. At a certain point in the midpoint of the tribulation, we've already seen in our study, he's going to be cast out of heaven down to the earth, and he's going to make it really tough on the earth because he knows that his time is short. He's going to be in the pit for a thousand years, released for a brief season or a brief period of time, and then he'll be thrown into the lake of fire where he'll be tormented forever and ever. Don't think for a second that Satan rules in hell. He does not. Oh, what I want to do, though, is take you through a quick study of what the Bible has to say about the word hell. And I heard someone say, uh-oh, because you know what the word quick means. We're about to pick it up. Before we can get to verses 11 through 15 of Revelation 20, you have to understand what the Bible says when, and what it says when it says hell. There are actually three words in the Greek that are translated hell in our English Bibles. All right, there are three words translated hell. The first one is the Greek word Tartarus, T-A-R-T-A-R-O-S, all right? And that is only used one time in the entire Bible, but it's translated hell. Go to 2 Peter chapter 2 and look at verse 4. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. 
It says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, then he knows how to deal with sinners, is what the passage is saying. So here it talks about some angels that rebelled, who were immediately at that time cast into a place of torment, judgment, until the final judgment. It's a temporary place for the wicked angels. Now, all the wicked angels that rebelled aren't in this place. These are the angels, and we don't have time to go there. But if you go back and look at Genesis chapter 6, you'll see that the Bible says that there was a time when some angels left their position. They started cohabiting with women on the earth, and they started to make babies. Remember, the Bible says that, that remember, God had told Satan in the garden that a seed of the woman was going to crush his head. And at that time, Satan doesn't know who it is. The only reason Satan doesn't know it is the Bible hadn't been written yet. The only stuff Satan knows is from what the Scripture says. And so all he knows is, is that a seed, a descendant of this woman, Eve, is going to kill him. So what does he do? He goes after all the righteous ones that come out. You got Cain and Abel. Abel was righteous. Cain wasn't. What does he have him do? He has Cain kill Abel. Maybe if I can kill him first. We see that all the way through. The ones who seem to be righteous seem to be the one that maybe God has his favor on. Joseph and others, Satan goes after him. David goes after him. We even see that when Jesus is born. He finally knows who it is by that point. And what does he do? Tries to have all the babies, two years old and down, killed to go after him. But in Genesis 6, his plan was, but if I can corrupt the seed, if I can corrupt the seed by having angels and women make babies, then there won't be this seed to kill me because I'll have polluted the gene pool. And that's why God at the end of that time had to do what on the whole world? He saved Noah and his family. And he wiped off every other human on the face of the earth in the flood. And he started over. Oh, by the way, those angels that left their position, they were put in Tartarus until the time of judgment. Do you see it there in 2 Peter 2.4? There's another word translated hell in our English Bibles. It's the Greek word Hades. And that word actually is used 32 times in the New Testament. We're not going to look at them all. We're going to look at four real quick. Go to Matthew chapter 11. This Hades is a place of fiery torment, which is a temporary holding place for the wicked dead, if you will, or those who reject God's offer for salvation, the humans, until the final judgment at the lake of fire. So in Matthew chapter 11, look at verses 20 through 24. Then he began, Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they didn't repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. In Capernaum, you Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, there'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So here Jesus describes that there's a place called Hades. You go down to Hades. Go to Luke chapter 16, a very familiar passage for many of us. In Luke 16, verses 19 through 24. And we're going to come back to this passage in just a little bit. So put a bookmark here because there's something I really feel like God wants me to share with everybody tonight from this passage in just a bit. In Luke 16, verses 19 through 24, it says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. By the way, they weren't licking his sores to be nice. They say when a Doberman is licking you, he's basting you, all right? 
the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. So here we see that this man died and he was in Hades and he's in fiery anguish. Oh, but he's very much alive, isn't he? He's very much alive. By the way, where's his body at this time? It's in the grave. He was buried. But his spirit and his soul went to this place of Hades and he could feel it. Look at Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, look at verses 17 and 18. John, when he saw Jesus, it says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last and living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and Hades. Man, I love that. The one who has control over who goes to Hades is my Savior. I don't have to worry about that. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing, isn't it? Revelation chapter 20, look at verses 13 and 14. It says, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and the death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. You see it? By the way, has anybody figured out what the third word We've already seen that Tartarus is used once, and that's just for those angels that rebelled in Genesis 6. And they're just held there till the time of judgment. There's a place called Hades for the humans who reject God's offer of salvation, and they die, they go to Hades. They don't go to hell right away. They go to a place called hell, but it's really Hades. And at a certain time, Hades, those who are in Hades are going to come out of Hades, and they're going to be thrown into... By the way, the third word translated uh, hell in our Bibles is Gehenna, G-E-H-E-N-N-A which is also translated the lake of fire. And this is used 12 times in the New Testament. I'm going to show you three real quick. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 22. Jesus is speaking and he says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit murder, or shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus doesn't talk about Hades here. He's now talking about the, the lake of fire, which is Gehenna. Go to Matthew 10, verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And by the way, that word hell is Gehenna, the lake of fire. By the way, he, listen to what Jesus said. He said, don't be afraid of man who can only kill your body, but that's it. You need to be afraid of the one who, after your body's been put to death, has the ability to throw your body and your soul into hell. Who's that? Thank you. I'm so glad to hear you say it. I've asked that question in so many churches, and they say, Satan. Satan doesn't have the power to throw you into hell. He's getting thrown into hell himself. <laughs> Who holds the keys to hell? Jesus does. And he's the one whom we should have a holy fear of, the Bible says. And hopefully that fear of him makes us run to him for his mercy. And we saw that word again 
as in our passage back in Revelation chapter 20, look at verse 15, or verses 14 and 15. And we just read part of this. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. All right. Now, the lake of fire, well, actually, before I get to a little bit more about the lake of fire, I need to point out one thing. I told you I was going to have you go back to, uh, to Luke uh, 16. Please go back to Luke 16, because I need to clarify a teaching that some of us in this room who come from this background have been taught, and we have to clarify it from Scripture. And I have, I'm not here to bash any denomination. That is not my desire. I just want to teach what the Word of God says. And many of you probably in here were taught that there was such a place, and I'm going to show you Scripture, there is none. Okay. There is no such thing as purgatory. There is no such thing as purgatory. There's been teaching. There's Texas, but it's not, that's, not, that's not it. That's it. No, there's no such thing as purgatory. Listen closely. People have been taught that there's a place that you go for torment and punishment, but you can be prayed out of there. Listen to the Bible. Back in Luke chapter 16, we saw that the rich man was buried, and he awoke in Hades, and he was in fire, in torment in the flame. He saw Lazarus up in the presence of God. He says, send him to dip his finger in, tongue, uh, in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this flame. Listen to verse 25 now. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he's comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here. Sorry, that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Do you see it? There's a place called Hades, and there's a place called Paradise. And there's nobody passing from Paradise to Hades, and there's nobody going from Hades to Paradise. If the Bible says once you're there, you don't get out of there, don't let man come up with a doctrine that teaches that you can get out. If you pay enough money and pray enough yeah. prayers, the Bible's very clear. There's no such place. Folks, I'm not going to have you turn there, but in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, the Bible says it's appointed for man once to die and then the judgment. So in other words, when you die, your, sate, your fate's been sealed. That's why we need to respond to this offer of salvation that God gives through faith in Jesus Christ. Look at Luke Verses 16, 25, and 26 again. Abraham said, Child, remember in your lifetime you received good things, and Lazarus and his men are bad, but now he's comforted here, and you're in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you, which is crazy, may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. I want you to see it again. There's no passing out of these places once you're there. All right? Now, we saw in Revelation chapter 20 that the lake of fire is... The second death. Actually, some of you might remember this. Where we ended up in the last few weeks, we were in that one section for a long time. Look at verse 5 of Revelation chapter 20. It talked about how the rest of the dead didn't come to life. The righteous came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. It says the rest of the dead didn't come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they'll reign with him for a thousand years. So in other words, for those who are going to come back to life and reign with Christ on the earth during the thousand years, is, do they have to worry about the second death? Scripture says that it has no power. What is the second death? I heard it. The lake of fire. Why is the lake of fire called the second death? I'm glad you asked. 
we've all were dead in our trespasses and sin, correct? And if you don't believe me, I don't, don't take my word for it. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. You know the Bible says there's no one righteous, not even one. We all have turned away. We all like sheep have turned away and none, you know, are righteous. We're all guilty. In Ephesians chapter 2, look at verses 1, 2, and 3. Ephesians 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of, our, of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, before I go any further, I've had too many people say to me over the years, I've always been a Christian. That's not biblically possible. The Bible says we were dead in our trespasses and sin. Didn't God say, the day you eat of that tree, you will die? Well, they ate of it and they didn't die. Well, not right away. But what happened? They did die. They died spiritually. The word death means separation. And when we were all born, we were all born dead. We, oh, we were alive. Our hearts were pumping and we were able to move around. But we were spiritually dead, unable to connect with God he had to come make it possible for us to be able to connect with him. And you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. Oh, but keep reading in verse 4 of Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what? He made us alive together with Christ. And by grace you have been saved. I love that. We were dead but, but through faith in Jesus, God made us alive. I want you to see not just in one place. Let me show you one other one. Go to John chapter 5. Listen to what Jesus says here in John 5. Look at verses 22 and 23 and 24. John 5, 22 through 24. Jesus is speaking now. He says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Those who have been born again through faith in Jesus Christ, who have been given righteousness by God, we don't have to worry about the second death. Oh, we were dead once. But we're never going to die spiritually ever again because we've been made alive spiritually never to die again. No, but Jim, aren't we going to die physically? Yeah, Jesus talked about that too. You're in John 5. Go to John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, verses 25 through 27. Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. So Jesus said, whoever, lives, whoever believes in me will live even though you die. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Oh, my body may die, but that's not the real me. That's just the shell I walk around in. If you've been born again by the Spirit of God, you live by the Spirit. That's why we've already seen in Galatians chapter 5, verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. If we've been born again, let's learn how to walk in the Spirit and let Him lead us and guide us. Folks, you don't have to worry about the second death. See, the people that are dealing with the second death are the ones who were born separated from God, and they died. 
right? Unable to connect with God. They live their whole life for themselves, rejecting God's offer of salvation. And then they, of course, physically die at some point. And they go to a place called what? Good deal. You're paying attention. That's good. That was the pop quiz and you did well with it. They go to Hades. At the end of the thousand years, after Satan's tempted everybody and consumed the ones who come against Jesus, Satan himself is thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever to be tormented forever and ever. I'm sure the demons are going to be going there as well, if they haven't already. And then he saw a great white throne. And him who was seated on it, by the way, we want to think it's God the Father. It's not. You just read in John chapter 5 that the Father judges no one. He's handed all judgment over to the Son. Who's sitting on that great white throne? Jesus is sitting on the great white throne. And he's not going to weigh people's good and their bad. The issue is whether or not their name's in the book of life. And so I want you to understand that all the dead came and stood before this great white throne. And they came up out of Hades. And we're going to look at some things tonight in the few minutes we have left. We won't experience the second death. If you want to look, write this down, look at it later on. You'll see in Revelation 2.11 and Revelation 3.5 and 6 that Jesus promises the churches you will never experience the second death. You'll never experience the second death if you're in Christ. Revelation 2.11 and Revelation 3.5 and 6. Jesus makes that promise to the churches. So, if... We who are in Christ have escaped the second death and have our names permanently in the book of life. That's what those two verses deal with. Who's going to be judged at the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, 11 through 15? All of the dead in all of history that have never received God's offer of salvation through Christ. Old Testament, tribulation, millennial kingdom, all the wicked dead. Remember, they'll all come to life again. They'll be resurrected and they're going to be brought before the great white throne. Now, don't miss this. The dead were judged according to what? According to Revelation chapter 20. To what they had done. Look, look closely at verse, uh, verse 11, and we'll just read it here again. Then I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it, and from his presence earth and sky fled away. Oh, by the way, earlier we saw everybody gathering around the throne and worshiping him. Now earth and sky goes, let's not be around for right now. This is a time of judgment, folks. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. So we, hear, we see here now that a bunch of books are opened, books plural, and another book which was opened, which is the book of life. And we've already, hopefully, if you know, if you've been um, saved, your name is in the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then if their names weren't in the book of life, it's a double check, if you will. They were cast in the lake of fire forever and ever. The Bible actually teaches that people will be tormented in hell, in the lake of fire forever and ever, according to how much sin they committed. We always look at the wicked and say, does God know what they're doing? He's keeping track, folks. You know, the Bible actually says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, Jesus himself said this, Matthew 12, 36, that the wicked will have to give account on the day of judgment for every idle word. There isn't a thing that escapes him. He keeps track of it all. Well, go to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. As Solomon has been wrestling with, you know, trying to understand life and God's purposes, and he comes at the end of his book, in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, 
comes to this conclusion at the end here. If you're not sure Ecclesiastes, it's right after Proverbs. You've got Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Look at chapter 12. Look at verses 13 and 14. Solomon says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So Solomon came to this final point, and he said, okay, the end of the matter is this. Here's the end of the matter. We're to fear God and keep His commandments. By the way, some of you are saying, well, Jim, I haven't kept all His commandments. Oh, go with me to John chapter 6 real quick. John chapter 6, look at verse 28. I really don't want you to miss this. Because you know what? Even in a room full of people who might have raised their hands and say, I'm saved there might be a chance that the Spirit of God might be convicting some people here tonight that you haven't put your full faith in Jesus Christ. See, because if you thought to yourself tonight, oh yeah, I'm going to heaven because I believe in Jesus and I've been a good person. The Bible says that you don't have saving faith because you put your faith in Jesus and your good works. The Bible says the only way we can be saved is by grace through faith alone in what Jesus has done. Not tied to how good we've been. And in John chapter 6, look at verse 28. Then they said to him, they said to Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? In other words, if we're to obey his commandments, what are we supposed to do? Look at what Jesus says. This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Why was God's law given? We've already talked about it tonight. Why were the commandments given? To show us that we can't keep them and that we're sinners then how am I going to be righteous if I have to be sinless to be righteous? I can't. Oh, there's somebody who was. The name is Jesus, and he was God, is God, became man, lived without sin, died on a cross for the sins of the whole world. Don't let me tell you, he only died for the ones who got saved. He died for everybody. And for those who will believe that what he did is real and that he's alive, that he gives salvation to all who would just receive that free gift, The Bible says, God says, I'll erase your sin. I'll put my spirit within you, and you'll never experience the second death. You don't have to worry about it. You won't even be at the great white throne judgment. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Let me close tonight with one last passage of Scripture. Go to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Did you see that, folks? We were all dead in our trespasses and sin. But God canceled the record of dead that stood against us with his legal demands. How did he do it? He nailed it to the cross. Hang on for a second. Don't miss this. Some people still wrestle with the fact that if I were to ask you, has God forgiven you of your past sins? You'd say yes. Are you forgiven of the sins you're going to commit tomorrow and the next day? And they say, I hope so. The answer is yes, because look at what the scripture said. At the time Jesus died on the cross... 
He paid for all your trespasses then. Let me ask you this question, who those of you who struggle with the stuff you're going to do tomorrow, whether or not it's going to be forgiven. How many of your sins were future when Jesus died on the cross? They all were. He paid for them before you were born. So you have been set free. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You've been made alive through Jesus Christ. And because of that, when this great white throne judgment comes, you and I won't be there because it's the dead who come before that and we're alive. Oh, you physically may die, but you won't. You're just going to move from this life to the next. Just like Stephen, as he was dying physically, he saw heaven opened and he just passed from this life to the next. And as they were stoning him, we didn't hear a lot of ouch, ooh, ooh, ah. All we heard was, I see Jesus standing, which is kind of cool. It feels you know your Bibles. The Bible says when he finished what he did on the cross, he went and sat down at the right hand of the Father. And if he saw Jesus standing, it's almost like Jesus was giving him a standing ovation. And then, uh, folks, that day's coming soon. The Bible says, if you know what the prophecy has been saying, that what's going on in our globe is showing us that things are picking up speed and the prophecies that are about to be fulfilled are getting all set up for it. Let me just say to you, if you're in Christ, thank him for it. And if you know people that don't know him, don't think it's your job to get them saved, but just share with them the good news and let the Spirit of God do its work. I love you all, and we'll see you in two weeks.